And um, I am excited that we are jumping into a brand new verse-by-verse study of a book of the Bible. And I think you're going to be excited about this one. So everybody grab your Bibles and flip to Revelation chapter 1. And then flip over one page to Jude, because we're studying the book of Jude. Gotcha, didn't I? I saw some of you leap on the inside, right? But uh, the book of Jude is where we're going to spend the next several weeks, and I I think you'll find it to be helpful, and I'm excited to study it. It's kind of a not so uh, well-known or well-studied, definitely not a well-quoted book of the Bible. It's a small little guy who gets lost there right before the book that everybody wants to study, which is the book of Revelation. And I, I, I promise, if the Lord allows, one day we will get to Revelation. But um, right now, the book of Jude, we're going to be in chapter 1, and uh, we're going to read verse uh, 1 and 2 today. So we're only going to get to two verses. It's a short book, 25 verses, um, and we're going to study it little verse by verse, piece by piece, and try to wring out all that God has for us. But uh, today, we're just going to hit the first two verses. So let's read it together, and then we will pray, and we'll unpack it. So uh, do you have your Bibles? you get Jude 1? There's only one chapter in Jude, so um, we'll just refer to it by its verses. So we're in Jude, uh, verse 1 and 2. You there? You ready? Here we go. I just feel like i got to say I'm sorry, guys. That was kind of cruel of me. I just had to do it. Anyways, Jude, chapter, <laughs> verse 1. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ, May mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I thank you, God, um, for our time in your, in your house and in your word with your people, God. And I just pray that you'd speak to us today. Uh, I really truly believe that you've purposed for us to spend these next weeks in uh, the book of Jude, in the letter of Jude. And I just pray that you would open our hearts and our minds and our eyes to see what you want us to see and and that we would really um, benefit from this time together. I pray it would be profitable and encouraging, challenging and strengthening, God. I pray you'd guide my words and my speech. I need you, Lord. I can't do this without you. And without you working among us, this uh, time is wasted. So I just pray that you would, you would guide us and that your Holy Spirit would move in power in this place. Lord, we love you. I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. And so um, we're going to be studying the book of Jude, but you know I don't think that it's a, really a healthy practice to just rip open the Bible and start reading without knowing what you have in your hands. And so uh, let us just go over kind of what, uh, what is happening in the book of Jude. Uh, if you start with just verse 1, the first word, Jude, okay? So Jude is the author of this letter, and Jude is the half-brother of Jesus, um, he had the same mom, different dad, right? Because Jesus was uh, born of a woman, but conceived by the Holy Spirit. And so Jude's mom is Mary, and uh, his dad is Joseph. And uh, Matthew 13, 55 uh, tells us, gives us the name of all Jesus' brothers. It says, Matthew 13, 55, the, the people who are listening to Jesus speak, they're like, is this not the carpenter's son? Is it, it his mother not called Mary? And are not his brothers James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas? Judas. Okay, so Jude is not really um, 
the pure translation of his name. His name is Judas, but traditionally English scholars have changed it slightly to Jude because we all know who Judas was. And after what happened with Judas, Judas was a common name in, this, in the first century. And so, but after what happened with Judas betraying Jesus, nobody really wanted to be known as Judas anymore. And so, um, so English translations just say, let's not associate this with Judas and just call him Jude. Um, but, so that's, that's Judas right there. He's he most likely be enlisted in the last of this line of brothers, probably was the youngest brother, Judas. Um, but then also, it's interesting because this book, as we'll see in a moment, that this book is primarily a warning against false teachers about people who have departed from the faith, um, who have apostatized in a sense, and, and it is interesting that the name of uh, the author is connected to the biggest falling away, the biggest apostate in uh, the Gospels, which is Judas. Just some interesting things. Um, and then his brother's James. It says that right in verse 1. Ju Judas, a servant of Jesus Christ, brother of James. Now James was the other um, brother of Jesus. And he's the author of the letter James. And he was a leader in the uh, Jerusalem church. And so one of the thoughts about why Jude probably referenced his brother James is because Jude might not have been a high-ranking person in the leadership of the local church. And so to give weight or some authority to his letter, he references, hey, I'm um, James's brother who was a well-respected leader in the church. And uh, but the interesting thing is that the brothers and siblings of Jesus didn't believe in Jesus uh, while he was doing his ministry, while he was alive, really. Um, it says uh, that uh, John 7, 5 says not even his brothers believed him. So his family was like, you're crazy. Actually, it says in uh, Mark 3, 21 that they believed that he was out of his mind. <laughs> so his family thought... He has lost it. He's cuckoo. He thinks he's the Messiah. He's crazy. What is he doing? So they didn't believe in him. I mean, like, uh, they didn't believe until after the resurrection. Now, what would it take for you to call your brother Lord? To worship your sibling as Lord and call them the Messiah, the Anointed One? What would it take for you to do that? Like not happening. My little brother, he plays bass today. It's not happening, okay? It's not happening. But um, what it took for them was watching him die on the cross and then seeing him resurrect from the dead. And that convinced a lot of people, even his siblings were like, okay, we'll worship you as God from now on. And... Um, and we see that after the resurrection, they were among the believers in Acts 1.14. When they're in the upper room waiting for the Holy Spirit, all these were in one accord, devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary and the mother of Jesus and his brothers. And they're referenced throughout the other epistles as well as being believers sent. So you get it, okay? So he's the brother, half-brother of Jesus, full brother of James. 
Uh, the date of the book is debated, but most best estimates are around 67 to 80 A.D. Um, his audience is most likely Jewish Christians who were familiar with the Old Testament. The book of Jude is filled with Old Testament references uh, along with extra biblical Old Testament, like uh, Hebrew literature. So what, the way he writes about it, he doesn't explain it. He writes about it like everyone should know about it. And so uh, it's believed that his audience is probably Jewish Christians who um, know the Old Testament. And the theme of the book is a warning against false teachers and false a doctrine. So he uh, sees some things coming. He's, he's like, look, I wanted to write to you in verse um, 3. It says, Beloved, although I was eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith once all delivered to the saints. So he's like, look, I wanted to write a really nice letter about our common salvation, how good Jesus is and all that kind of stuff. But I, there's just something going on that I have to warn you about. I can't let it go on any longer. And it's kind of like, if you ever watched like a scary movie, like I know that, that as good Christian people, you don't watch scary movies, but, but just pretend that you've watched a scary movie. The stereotypical scary movie is where you have all these, <laughs> it's always like young white people who are going into this lagoon or something and, and you just saw the murderer, what the axe murderer or whatever, he was just there. So you know they're going into danger and you're sitting there screaming at your TV like, what are you doing? What are you doing? Turn around, don't go in there thinking that they're going to hear you or something. Wouldn't that be crazy if all of a sudden the plot of the movie just changed? They're like, what? <laughs> okay. <laughs> and, then, and then it's over. But, but that's the idea. Jude's like, I see danger, and I want to warn you about it. I don't want you to find yourself caught up in it. I want come, come away from that. And so he's warning them about danger, and he's encouraging them to contend for uh, the faith, um, one thought, um, one, one author said, one thought characterizes this epistle. Beware of the apostates, okay? Apostate is a departure from the truth. It's someone who's, who at one point said, I believe these things, and then they have left them. They've departed from them. It's called an apostate, apostasy. And, uh, and so what he's saying is that there are some people who have left the faith, and I want to um, encourage you and equip you and help you to contend for the faith, to defend these things, and to be aware of the people who try to lead you astray. So why, so that's the theme, it's a warning, but why are we studying it uh, in our church here uh, today? Why would I choose this book to go through at this time? Um, the, the simple reason is uh, because God said so. <laughs> that's, that's kind of the simple reason. It, it is that I, I hope you know that I take very seriously the teaching of the Word of God and my role here in bringing that to you every week. Um, and so I seek diligently through prayer and study on what God has for us. And this was the one that I could not get away from. Okay? So... 
Simple reason is because God said so. But then a secondary reason would be, I think it's because our Christian culture today is filled with people who have a ton of influence, but very poor doctrine. Okay, with the rise of all of the beautiful technologies that we enjoy with uh, social media and YouTube and, and, and all that kind of stuff, you have people who don't necessarily have great credibility and they don't have sound doctrine, but they have gained a following. And what happens is that begins to permeate the worldview or the thinking or the beliefs of a common Christians. And so we are inundated with terrible teaching. And so this study is going to help us be able to um, identify sound doctrine versus false doctrine and warn us to be careful about um, the things that we allow to influence our hearts and our minds. Okay, so I think it's super relevant um, in our day to, to study this, but also because God wants us to be going through this. It's interesting that, that Jude, what well, we're going to uh, work through these first two verses is really just a positive greeting. He, he's like, greeting, uh, love you, hope you're doing okay, praying for you, bless you. He gives this really positive greeting because what he's about to go through in the book is going to be very hard for them to hear and for, for them to obey. Like, this is a hard teaching, and so I want to start with some good stuff. It's kind of like, you know, the old, like, compliment sandwich. You go, you got to confront somebody about something, you, you start with something nice, and you end with something nice, and you put the hard news right in the middle. It's like, hey, uh, Bobby, you know, I'm so, you, you are, you are, the, you are the, the most punctual person on our team. And I really appreciate that about, that about you, but you know what? You could really work on some of your like active listening skills. But I'm so grateful that you're a team player. You know, it's like you do this, you do this thing where you're trying to, to surround the hard news with the uh, good news. And so he's going to start off by like, here's some good stuff because it's about to get hard. And we're not going to get into the difficult today. That's going to be next week and the preceding weeks, but um, the following weeks. But here, here we are. Um, he starts with who we are in Christ. He starts with telling them who you are. You're, you're a, a called and you're um, beloved and you're kept. He starts with who they are in Christ because who we are, who our identity is, what we believe about ourselves, is the thing that permeates everything else in our life. It just gets everywhere. Yesterday I was uh, mowing the grass and I put all the grass clippings on the fire pile and I had some old grass clippings so I started the fire earlier in the day and, but grass fires, like, they don't flame up, they just kind of smolder and I, I was kind of expecting it to do a little more than it did but what it did was just produce a ton of smoke and it was like foul smelling smoke, it was not great and, um, and so when I got back inside after <laughs> the day was over, I mean, the smoke was everywhere. Everybody, everything smelled like this. If, if I smell like that, I'm sorry. But God inside and came. He's like, um, I, I noticed you, you started a fire outside. I said, yes. She said, all the clothes in the dryer smell like smoke now. <laughs> and I was like, oh, no. It's because the smoke just like permeates everything, gets everywhere. And, and what you believe about yourself, 
like your identity, who you are in Christ, is going to lay the foundation for everything else that we believe. And so he's like, I've, I've got to uh, strengthen your foundation of your identity in Christ before we get into all the difficulties of confronting false teachers and false teaching. Um, if we're going to fight for the faith, which is what he's going to ask us to do, we must first understand who we are and our role in all of this. Okay, So we're going to see several things. And the first thing is this. He says, I... Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ, a servant of Jesus Christ. So um, he's a servant. This is really a humble way for Jude to introduce himself, isn't it? Um, why, not, why not introduce himself as the half-brother of Jesus? I don't know about you. I think if I was the half-brother of Jesus, a blood, physical relative of Jesus, I'd lead with that. I'd be like, yep, Jesus' brother. I know I'm Jesus. I'm Jesus' brother. Um, but he doesn't do that. This is a very humble way. And it's interesting that he, he um, more valuable than his physical relationship with Jesus, which I'm, I'm sure as he looked back on his childhood growing up uh, with Jesus, he treasured those memories. But more valuable than his physical relationship with Jesus was his new uh, spiritual relationship with Jesus as uh, Lord. His relationship, he, he believes, is no longer brother to brother, but servant to master. Um, actually, uh, and, and we're called servants of Christ. Um, 1 Corinthians 6 says that we were bought with a price. 1 Peter says we were bought by the blood of Jesus. And so that we are not our own, that we belong to Christ, and that's how he primarily identifies himself. If anyone would identify themselves as relationship first, like familial relationship, Jude could have done that. But it's interesting that he doesn't choose to primarily identify himself as a, a familial relationship. He chooses to identify himself with Jesus as a servant-master relationship. That he's, he, he's helping us understand that we are not our own, but we belong to Jesus. We belong to Jesus. Now you might now the, the really the word here for servant um, originally is the word slave, and servant is a good translation, but but slave is the a better idea of you know you you're kind of owned, you belong to someone, and uh, but we here in America we're like I'm not a slave to anyone, I'm not a slave to anyone, I'm free. This is America, I'm free, you know, and uh, and I'm, I'm not suggesting that you're like physically a slave to anyone, but the reality uh, that the Bible shows us is that um, you are a slave to someone or something, that we are either a slave to our sin or we are a slave to Christ, but you're a slave to something. And Romans 6 does a good job of uh, explaining this. I'm going to flip there uh, to Romans 6. You can if you'd like. I just want to point out a couple of verses to you. Because Romans 6, verse 16 and 17, says, Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are a slave to the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? He's like, whatever you obey, whatever you say yes to, that's what you 
are a slave to. Verse 17, But thanks be to God that you were once slaves of sin and have become obedient to the heart, um, from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were uh, committed. Let's go down to verse 22. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification as its end, eternal life. So, so he's like, what uh, servants say yes to their master. That servants exist to serve their master. That you are a slave to whatever, when it calls your name, you say yes. And so pre-Christ, whenever sin called your name, you didn't have the power to say no, you said yes. And you were a slave to that. And what he's saying is that that's going to lead to, to death, ultimately. But whenever you come to Christ, ownership is being transferred, and now you belong to God and to Christ. And whenever Jesus says something, you say yes. You obey. He has your yes. That's what it means. And the result, or the fruit in verse 22 says, that the fruit of this being a slave to Christ is eternal life. That life comes out of this. And, um, and so, the idea here is that you are a slave to something. Whatever it is that calls your name and you say yes to it. You're a slave to it. And so... I would just urge you to say yes to Jesus. And it's incredible that Jude, the physical brother of Jesus, primarily sees himself as servant. As servant. I, I kind of think of the, I, the idea of uh, the prodigal son. Maybe you're familiar with the story of two sons, the prodigal runs away, and um, whenever he gets to the lowest point in his life, he's, he's got a job feeding pigs, and he's so hungry and so poor that he's like, man, that pig food looks good. And it says that he came to himself and said, man, the servants at my father's house, they live way better than this. I'll, I'll go back not as a son, but as a slave. And so his attitude uh, coming to his father was, I'm your servant. And the father's attitude uh, coming towards him was, you're my son. And so, yes, we are sons and daughters of Christ, and he loves us like children. But I think it seems like our primary attitude should be, um, I'm your servant. I'm your master. I'm your, I'm your slave. You're my master. You're in charge. I do what you say. So, then as a servant of Jesus Christ, four things, you are um, called. We're back in uh, Jude now. He says, you're called. Um, Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ, the brother of James, to those who are Called. That's actually the title of the sermon today, to those who are called. And we like to use the, the, the term called to mean a bunch of things, 
Like I was, I'm called to be a, a worship pastor, or I'm called to be an artist, or I'm called, like we use it kind of in a lot of ways, but biblically it has a lot more narrow meaning. It's not used necessarily like that. The two primary ways this word is used, um, this particular specific word is only used 10 times in the New Testament, and the primary way it is used is um, uh, Paul uses it when he says that I was called to an, be an apostle of Jesus Christ. Uh, so it's a call to an office or a duty or a responsibility. And the word apostle is a word that means a sent out one. And I guess we could even feel the same, like we are called to be sent out into the world to uh, tell others about the Lord. So um, uh, called to an office or a duty. But the second main way that it is used in most of the other references is um, a call to um, salvation, a call to belong to God, or it's used a few times uh, to say you were called to be saints. You were called to be saints, that whenever we come to Christ, um, he calls us saints, that saints are not, it's not like you have to wait till you die and then and have several miracles, and it's not this elevated status of a person that you're bestowed some special honor of being called a saint. The Bible calls all believers in Jesus saints. And the word saint is this word hagios, which means holy or different. Um, uh, I'll skip some of the references here. Romans 1.7 says, To all who are in Rome, who are, be- who are loved by God and called to be saints... Uh, 1 Corinthians 1-2, to the church in Corinth, to those sanctified in Jesus Christ, called to be saints. And so the word saint is this word that means holy. Holy is the idea of being different. The Bible talks about how we, in the the Ten Commandments, it says, um, uh, honor the Sabbath, observe the Sabbath, and keep it holy. The idea is that it's different. The Sabbath day is a different day than all the other days. Um, God is called holy, that he is completely different than us. He is a different being. He's holy. And we as saints are called to be different from the world. We're called to live differently and think differently and act differently and feel differently. We're called to be different than the world. So the call to, uh, to come to Christ is a call to a different way of life, a holy life. Um, But what this also reveals to us is that this letter was written to Christians. He's not writing to unbelievers. His audience are Christians, those who have been called. Um, What this means is that these are things that believers need to hear. So when we get into like Beware of false teaching, false teachers, and false doctrine. We've got to realize that these, these are important things for us to learn. Um, these people have accepted the invitation to become disciples of Jesus Christ, and they answered the call. But who did the calling? You know, he says, um, called those who are called, beloved in God. Who did the calling? Well, God did the calling, of course, right? Who picked up the phone? Did you call God and was like, hey, God, I want to be yours? Or did he call you? Um, Well, Romans 8.30, I'm sorry, says, those whom he predestined, he also called. And those who he called, he justified. And those who he justified, he glorified. 
that God is the one who initiated the call. You can be sure that if He called you, He'll justify you. It means you've, you're made right with God. You're perfect in His sight. And those who He justified you will be glorified. That there's this period of time between justification, me being made right with God, and glorification, me being perfect in His presence. And there's this um, a period of time there where we are sanctified, becoming like Him. But um, um, James Shattuck in his uh, commentary says this, This is a mysterious wonder in this truth that a sovereign God effectually brings a person to salvation in perfect harmony with their free will response to the gospel. There is a marvelous, complementary, and mind-bending mystery. Alright, so the whole debate on do I do the calling or does God do the calling? Who called who first? He's like, it's a mystery. The Bible clearly teaches that God is the one who initiated our salvation. But it also teaches that we are the ones who need to make a choice to believe on Him. And, uh, and so He calls us. And so if you are in Christ, just know that He called you, and hopefully you answered the phone. <laughs> Number two, you are loved. You are loved. He says to those who are called... Beloved in God the Father. Beloved in God the Father. Maybe your translation says, um, says uh, sanctified, in, or something of that nature. The, the, I think the New King James uh, says like sanctified or something there. The word is agapeo. It's the, the best translation is loved or beloved. That you are loved. And you, you hear this a lot here because we love to, uh, <laughs> to tell you um, what very few people uh, tell you, which is that you're loved. In, in Christ, that you are loved. The word both loved and kept, which we're going to get to, are in perfect tense, affirming that both are settled realities for the Christian. This is not something I have to earn. This is not something that, 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 that like, the more I do, the more God loves me. The less I do, the less God loves me. This is a settled reality for um, the believer. It's interesting that this is the only place in the Bible where the phrase loved by God the Father exists. But he wants you to know that he loves you um, uh, like a child. Like there is a sense where God loves all the creatures of the world. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. There is a sense God loves everyone. But there's a special sense in where he especially loves his children. It's kind of like, like it's comparable to I like, I love my friends, have some great friends, love them dearly, but it doesn't compare to the love I have for my wife or, uh, or my children. Like it's a different, special, unique um, love. And in Christ, we are loved. And um, 1 John 4.10 says in this uh, this is love not that we have loved God but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation um, for our sin so it's even not like that we have, we're so great we love God although I hope you do um, but he's the initiator of this love because he showered it upon us and, and the word love a simple definition means to take pleasure in. To take pleasure in. 
Can you ever think about that? That God takes pleasure in you as his child. That he takes pleasure in you. Um, like I just, you know, like if you have children, man, you just, you just you look at them and as crazy as they are, you like you get this pleasure from seeing them grow and learn and flourish. That it's a unique, unique love. But it's also like a sacrificial love because isn't love really proven by what you're willing to do, uh, sacrifice for that person? I think about Jesse shared last week about how uh, Eden got sick. One of the first night we were in Mexico, uh, we're staying at the top of this, at the, on the roof of this church, and uh, it was kind of some rough conditions, but it, Eden got sick that night and puked several times, and there's not like, there wasn't a bathroom right like next door to go run to to clean up, and the bathrooms weren't the most sanitary places to bring a child anyways, and so, so he's like, it's <laughs> the first time I've ever like, caught the vomit. I hope it's okay I share this, Jesse. I think you've shared it, though. But he's like okay, catching her, his child's vomit in his hands. And it's like, you don't do that for anybody. <laughs> right? You, you do that for someone you love. It's like, what are you willing to do to sacrifice? What suffering are you willing to go through? Yeah, that proves your love. And, and so how did God prove his love for us? Well, Romans 5.8 says, But God shows His love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That if we want to see the love, how does God love us? We have to look to the cross. And what, the reason this is important is because there are times in your life where you're going through a circumstance, life is so difficult, that you wonder, does God really love me? Does He really love me? It doesn't feel like He loves me. And whenever you're in that moment where uh, you found yourself questioning God's love for you, it is important for you to remember the cross. Who else would do that for you? Who else do you know who loves you so much that they would sacrifice their one and only child to give you life? Who do you know who would do that? He loves you. And let's remember the cross. Um, so we're beloved in God, the Father. Um, that our attitude towards Him should be that of servant towards Master, but His attitude towards us is one as a, a loving Father towards His children. Um, it's interesting that we deserve to be treated like servants but he treats us like sons. Just go, go back to the story of the prodigal. That, that kid, he took his inheritance, he went and blew it all, he made a mess of his life, he shamed the family. When he came back, he deserved for his dad to say, if at all, give him a job. But yeah, you're going to be a servant, and you're going to have the worst job. You're going to go clean the pig pen here, okay? Like, that's what he deserved. But what he got was the lavish, unconditional love of his father. And um, you are loved, church. All right, la third is that you're kept. He says you're loved in God the Father and kept for uh, Jesus 
of Christ. Jude loves this word kept. It's used five times in these 25 verses. Um, and, and so it's a theme here. But the word means to protect, to keep from harm, or to preserve. Um, here the emphasis is that we are kept um, safe in our salvation by Jesus Christ. And so it's like, what if I mess it up? Well, He's going to keep you. He's going to protect you. Um, Jude 24 uses this word where it says, Now to Him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of His glory with great joy. He's like, He's able to keep you from stumbling. So He's going to write, hey, there's some false teachers. They're going to try to lead you astray. And you might wonder, what if I'm led astray? Like, what if I get caught up in this? And what if I fall away? And He's like, look, if you're called, He's going to keep you. He, he has the power to protect you. And Hebrews 7.25 says, Consequently, He is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through Him, since He always lives to make intercession for them. He's able. He's strong and able and can make it happen. One author noted that Scripture's witness on the crucial doctrine of God's preserving work is clear. His work on earth... In His work on earth, Jesus obtained our salvation, but by His work in heaven, Jesus maintains our salvation. Hebrews talks about how He's making intercession for us, that part of His preserving, keeping work is that He's active in heaven, interceding on your behalf. And so His work on earth obtains salvation. His work in heaven uh, maintains or preserves our salvation. Um. And he, he's, he's strong to do it. So yesterday, uh, my, our family went to the, uh, the zoo, and part of the zoo was this, like, splash pad. And this is the first time my children have ever seen a splash pad, especially these uh, twin boys. And so they're all, and we showed up to the splash pad, and there's a ton of kids. I was like, maybe this is not a great idea. And it was a fairly large splash pad in the middle of the zoo. If you've ever been to the Hattiesburg Zoo, you know what I'm talking about. So... We put their swimsuits on and let them go. And um, uh, we don't have swimsuits on us, so we're going to have to control these kids from outside of the splash area. And um, so now, so now, uh, trying to keep track of three kids, two that look identical, <laughs> amidst like 30 kids is like a task. Especially, especially when one of them has this little beach ball that he'll follow anywhere. And so he'll kick this beach ball and he'll, he'll look, just look down, follow that thing anywhere. If, if it leads him into the tiger pen, he's going. And so several times you look looking around, they're like, wait, where's the other one? And you look and he's walking off into the zoo. There's no fence or anything. You know, there's just like he's walking off. And our entire job, my wife Cammie and I, our entire job was to keep our kids from running away, right? It's like, and, and it was a task. You get up and you go, and you go, come on, let's go back, let's go back, let's go back. And to keep them, and I'll tell you, we were worried about our competence to keep. I'll tell you, it was like, I don't know if we're ever going to do this again. But, um, but here's, that's what God's doing. Like we wander, we, we wander and we stray and we, we, we do silly things and, and he just comes and runs, come on, all right, it's time, let's get back, let's get back because he is, competent to keep. He is strong 
to save. And you can be sure if you're in Christ, he's going to protect you, and he's going to keep you, and that my, uh, my um, confidence in my making it to heaven is not my ability to hold on to God, but his ability to hold on to me. It, it was not in their power, my kids' power, to uh, maintain in the splashing area, that that was my strength to do that for them. And God's the one who calls, and he loves you, and he will keep you if you're in him, okay? So lean into him. Out of love for us, he joyfully keeps us, protects us, and preserves us. And so we have three things here. Called, loved, and uh, kept. And one person noted that um, the Holy Spirit called, that's in the past tense. It's something that happened to you in the past. If you're a believer, he called you. That God the Father loves you in the present. That is a perfect tense, present love for you. And then the Son will secure your future and keep you. This is kind of a future tense type of thing. So we've got it all covered. We've got it all covered. And, um, but you might ask this question. Uh, is he calling me for my benefit or uh, for his benefit? This is really the question you ask when somebody asks you to do anything, right? You kind of wonder, do they truly um, value me or are they just wanting me to do things for them? Uh, do they truly value my personhood and my growth and, and, and my family? Like, Do they value me or they just want me to help them succeed. And so what is it with God? What is his motive behind calling you? Is he in it for your benefit? And um, I think two things that the scripture teaches us. That God's primary motive is for his glory. It's for his glory. That God is for uh, God primarily. But that he is also for your good. Um, that all he does is for his glory, but it's also for your good. And, um, and so, yes, he is for himself, uh, for his glory, which is the, per the best thing he could do. Um, but then also, here's, here's how I wrote it. Being a servant of Jesus Christ is the best possible life available. It's not the easiest life, but it's the best life available. And he shows us this by saying you are, um, may mercy and peace and love be multiplied to you. The point is this, that you are blessed. As a servant of Christ, you are uh, blessed. That living as a servant. So you're wondering, like, servant doesn't sound like good things. But whenever you live as a servant of Jesus, it actually becomes the best thing for you. And that in your life becomes increasingly uh, increasingly good. I don't want you to associate blessed with material things. Because the blessedness, uh, the favor and well-being of God transcends material things. There are blessed people who are rich. There are blessed people who are poor. Jesus was poor. He was blessed. But he says, let mercy and peace and love be multiplied. That this is not just added to your life. That this is something that should increase 
substantially in your life. That as I live as a servant of Jesus, I experience more of the mercy and the peace and the love of God for me, but then it also uh, flows out of me that those who have been blessed become a blessing and that I should increase in my mercy for others and my, my bringing, being a peacemaker in the lives of others and my love for others. Notice it's Jude who is, who is uh, blessing them with these things. He's like, as a servant of Jesus, I want you to have mercy and peace and love. And so these things should increase in our life, but then they should be increasingly out of our life. The Bible says that we love because He first loved us. That whenever we experience the love of God, it has to flow through us to others. And so the idea here is that as we grow in our security as a servant of Christ who is called and loved and kept, that our experience of mercy, love, and peace increases in our life. And so um, I just, just want to tell you, hey, if, if, if you're skeptical about this idea of, of living as a servant of Christ, just know it's the best way to live. Would you bow your heads with me? Father in heaven, I thank you for our time in your word. And Lord, I thank you that in the coming weeks, we're going to experience uh, a lot of um, encourage, uh, warning and encouragement around false teaching and false doctrine and false teachers and how to identify false teaching and, and be secured in sound doctrine. So I thank you for this book that is going to equip us over the next weeks. But I, also, I thank you today that your word has shown us who we are in you. Um, that we would follow Jude's example. That we'd be a servant of Jesus Christ. That we'd be secure in the fact that we are called. That you're the one who saved us and transformed our lives. That we are loved by you as a father showers his love. A good father showers his love on his children. That we are kept, that you're going to preserve us, that you're going to protect us, that you're going to keep us. And that we are blessed. I want to thank you for the blessing of knowing you and uh, living for you. And I just pray that that blessing would increase in all of our lives as we seek to be servants of Jesus Christ. So Lord, if there's anyone in here who, who maybe they aren't in, maybe they aren't, they can't say, I am a servant of Christ, or I am a follower of Jesus, or I have been called... I pray that today your Holy Spirit would call them, that you would uh, woo them and work on their heart, that they would surrender to you and find life in your name. And they would experience the blessedness that we all do in Christ, that they'd be multiplied in, with mercy and peace and love. We love you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.